welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, Episode 7. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is The Admiral of the Ocean Sea, Part 5, our last on Christopher Columbus. I'm recording this on February 4th, 2021, in New Orleans. Last week, we looked at Columbus's expedition as it moved around the Caribbean after the first contact in the Bahamas, including the discovery of Cuba and Hispaniola, and more importantly for the long term, gold in the ground. This time, we will discuss the visit home, which required impressive seamanship in the context of delivering some of the most important news ever to travel by sea, and the spreading of that news once Nina and Pinta got back to Europe. The fleet left the Gulf of Arrows in the wee hours of January 16, 1493, carrying with it the greatest geographical secret of all time. All that followed depended on Columbus getting back to Spain, and that was by no means a foregone conclusion, since he and his expedition would be crossing the Atlantic in winter over water that no other human had ever traversed. Columbus had learned from the voyage west that the route from the Canaries involved quite consistent easterlies, so going back the way he came would not make any sense. While he knew that strong westerlies blew down on the Azores, he did not know how far south and west of the Azores he was, and in any case, Columbus really did not want to get caught up with the Portuguese, who controlled the Azores while he was on a mission for Spain, their rival, an occasional enemy. In short, Columbus only knew part of what we know today about the clockwise circulation of winds in the central Atlantic, from easterlies in the south to the Gulf Stream, then westerlies in the north. Once again, Columbus made a major error that turned out in his favor. He recorded in his journal that he had set a, quote, direct course for Spain, northeast by east. Columbus's most celebrated biographer, Samuel Eliot Morrison points out the problem. He was grossly mistaken if he supposed this to be the direct course for Spain. It would have missed even the British Isles and fetched up somewhere in the Arctic. Yet, just as his colossal underestimate of the width of the ocean led him to discover America, so this equally gross error in the course for home enabled him to get there. For, as the experience of later voyages proved, the fastest route for a sailing vessel from Hispaniola to Europe was to work northward, close-hauled to the trade wind, to the latitude of Bermuda, and there catch the prevailing westerlies for Spain. Columbus, of course, did not know this. He apparently expected a convenient westerly turn of wind in the latitude where he then was, close quote. Fortunately for Columbus, the wind essentially pushed him to the route that he actually needed to take, forcing him to tack such that he ended up heading pretty much north to the latitude of Bermuda where, quote, the brave winter westerlies would send the caravels rolling home before the wind. By February 4th, Columbus caught those winds and set his course east, about 100 miles south of the latitude of the southernmost Azores, and pointed right towards Spain, once again being more lucky than right. From February 4th to the 7th, a winter gale out of the northwest blew the caravels along at about 150 miles a day, doing 198 miles from sunset on the 5th until sunset on the 6th. This was unbelievably fast by the standards of the day. 
Morrison points out that unless any of Columbus's crew had ridden a racehorse, 11 knots was a greater absolute speed than they had ever known. Three weeks along and all looking good so far. And at that rate, they would be home in no time. Unless not. The wind slowed on February 8th for a few days, and then on February 12th, all hell broke loose. The winter of 1492-93 was cold and stormy in southern Europe. Even the harbor of Genoa was frozen over on Christmas Day, and high winds trapped ships in the harbor at Lisbon for months. Nina and Pinta were headed right into a potentially lethal storm. Columbus would keep detailed notes in his journal. How he wrote in a caravel pitched by the midwinter jicker is beyond me, but Morrison calls it the earliest detailed description of an actual storm at sea. Modern meteorologists have interpreted what happened from the record Columbus constructed. The storm of February 12th to the 14th was not your run-of-the-mill tempest, but the collision of two well-developed fronts, one trucking down from the Arctic and the other moving up from the tropics. When Morrison was writing in 1940, he was able to say even then that because weather in the region of the Azores was so important to shipping, it had been intensively studied in modern times. Storms of the character described by Columbus are not uncommon there, even if they are very tough on a small sailing ship. In the event, the winds blew so hard that the ships pulled down their sails completely. Dry tree, the Spaniards called it. Even so, with wind so fierce, the ships covered about 35 miles the first night, just blown along. By the night of February 13th, it had gotten so bad in the collision of the fronts that the seas, quote, formed dangerous pyramidical waves that stopped the caravel's headway with a menacing shiver and then broke on their decks in torrents of green water and white foam, close quote. Nina was in particular trouble because she was under-ballasted. They consumed their heavy stores or left them at La Navidad and who replaced them with empty wine casks filled with salt water. Columbus feared they would go down that night. The crew assembled and drew lots, actually chickpeas, one of which had a cross carved into it, to determine which of them would go on a pilgrimage to each of three shrines in the event that Nina survived the storm. Columbus won twice and promised to pay the traveling expenses of the seamen who pulled the cross pea the third time. And of course, the ship survived, which is no surprise insofar as you are listening to this podcast. That night, the flagship again lost contact with Penta under far more understandable circumstances than the first time. The storm raged through the day on the 14th, not a particularly happy St. Valentine's Day there in the Mid-Atlantic, and Columbus grew worried that his discovery would go down with a ship. There, in his cabin, in a pitching and rolling caravel, Columbus got out ink and quill and wrote a brief account of his voyage and discoveries, wrapped the parchment in a waxed cloth, and then ordered that it be sealed in a wooden barrel and cast into the sea. The message in the barrel never surfaced, although in 1892, a sketchy London publisher claimed that he had secured it from a fisherman who had recently picked it up off the coast of Wales. Sadly, the document was at the lame end of the forgery continuum, insofar as it was written in English, a language that Columbus would not have had any particular reason to know. I think this is a human moment for Columbus, one we can perhaps feel across five centuries. Here he thought that he was going to die at sea. 
a very reasonable fear given the current storm and the life expectations for explorers in the age of sail in general. He and his crew gathered together and promised God that if they survived, they would make pilgrimages in gratitude. Then, no doubt fearing death, Columbus spent what might have been his last minutes on Earth doing everything he could to make sure that his legacy would somehow survive, even if he did not. All his material rewards would be forfeit, but still his vision, which had been rejected by almost all the smartest men in Europe over more than 10 years, would be ratified. One can almost feel his anxiety in the writing of that message in a barrel. By the evening of the 14th, the storm in fact waned and the sky cleared, and at dawn the next morning, one of the seamen spotted land dead ahead. It was Santa Maria, one of the Azores, which Columbus had wanted to avoid in the abstract. But after the terror and exhaustion of the three days in the storm, he decided that any port after a storm would do, even one under Portuguese control. This would not be the last time Columbus would make that decision. As it turned out, his fear of Portuguese entanglements was justified. Nina anchored in the shelter of a small peninsula, and Columbus sent half the crew ashore to round up the Padre and say mass, since they all had a lot to be thankful for. They stripped down to just their shirts, the proper penitential garb in those days, whereupon the local functionary, a fellow named Castanera, and his posse arrived on horseback and took them all prisoner. They couldn't fight back, really, wearing only shirts. Castanera, it seems, figured Nina for having been on a smuggling mission from Guinea, where the Portuguese had a monopoly conferred by the Pope. Castanier and some men took a boat out to Nina with the idea of capturing Columbus, who yelled at them from his deck, flashing his various credentials. Castanier seemed to believe that it was all nonsense, at which point Columbus lost his temper and, quote, swore by San Fernando he would not leave until he had depopulated Santa Maria and captured a hundred Portuguese to carry home as slaves. This was an empty threat because Columbus had only half his small crew and no meaningful weapons, so he sailed off in a huff with almost no actually competent seamen supposedly looking for higher Portuguese authority elsewhere in the Azores. After a few days of general futility, he sailed back to Santa Maria, only to be greeted by a boat with still more functionaries, this time promising to release his crew and the proper inspection of credentials. This happened, and by February 24th, 10 days after having arrived, Nina again set sail for Spain. But where was Pinta? We'll get back to that. On February 26th, another storm whipped up, apparently at its crescendo on March 3rd, even worse than the first storm. Quoting Morrison, The cold front, the squall line which Nina had crossed, seems to have extended almost parallel to and southward of her course. So it was almost as if she had a hostile fleet firing at her from just under the horizon. Wind rose to at least force 10 on the Beaufort scale, That would be about 60 miles an hour, and probably to hurricane strength in the squalls. It was some consolidation that it blew from the northwest, so Nina drove ahead to the eastward. But the coast was coming dangerously near, and there was the same terrible cross sea as in the earlier tempest. As the dark afternoon waned, anxiety became intense, for Columbus knew by his dead reckoning and the look of things that he was very near to land, 
driving toward the iron-bound coast of Portugal. Sunset at 6 on March 3rd, and shortly afterward, the cyclone delivered her last tail latching. The wind rose to so terrible a tempest that they thought they were lost from the seas that came aboard from two directions, and the winds would seem to raise the caravel into the air and the water from the sky and lightning flashes in many directions. Fortunately, it was the night of full moon, which sent enough light through the storm clouds so that at 7 p.m., when the first watch was set, the seamen sighted land dead ahead. Close quote. This was another moment that would prove Columbus to be a great captain at sea. They were headed straight for shore, just as night was falling, and would certainly have died if wrecked on the rocks. Columbus ordered the crew to pull the one remaining sail from storage, wind notwithstanding, and forced attack to the northwest, which the men struggled to maintain the rest of the night. At dawn on March 4th, Columbus spotted the famous Rock of Sintra, which marks the entrance to the estuary leading to Lisbon. Nina turned and scudded upriver into the harbor and dropped anchor about four miles downstream from the center of Lisbon, again in the jurisdiction of Spain's geographical rival, following a storm. Now, at this point, we should recall a couple of items from earlier episodes. The king of Portugal, John II, had turned down Columbus's proposal, probably because his own advisors correctly thought Columbus had grossly underestimated the distance to Asia, and also because Bartholomew Diaz had found his way around the bottom of Africa. King John was in Lisbon, and Diaz, as it happened, was the master of a great Portuguese man of war anchored near Nina, which fact Columbus only learned when Diaz came over on a boat and ordered Columbus to come aboard the man of war and account for himself. Columbus refused, taking the position that he earned the promised office Admiral of the Ocean Sea, and as an Admiral of Castile by longstanding custom and practice, he would not come to another ship unless by force of arms. Diaz took this in and asked to see Columbus's papers, which the Admiral produced to Diaz's satisfaction. The discoverer of the Cape of Good Hope then went back to his ship to report his story to his captain, Juan Alvaro de Mayo, who then came aboard Nino with pipes and drums and such in recognition of Columbus's status and offered to, quote, do all he commanded. There's a high-stakes bluff gone right. Columbus also sent a letter to King John asking permission to proceed up to Lisbon and requesting a meeting and being careful to say that he had not come from Guinea, but from the Indies. On March 8, four days after landfall, King John sent a response inviting Columbus to come and visit him. He also directed his agents to supply Nina with provisions at his expense. Columbus packed up various of the gold items and other souvenirs and selected the healthiest of his 10 captive Indians to share the royal weekend, as Morrison put it. One might pause here and fairly imagine what a tough time these Indians from the tropics were having. Between the storms at sea, an utterly new and terrifying experience, to a muleback ride through the crowded, narrow, muddy streets of medieval Lisbon in late winter. Almost any American of our own time would find either very stressful, so I bet those Indians passed through an excruciating experience on their own transatlantic voyage of discovery. For Columbus's part, he had to worry about the reception he would receive. If all went well, King John might be defensively skeptical, since he had turned down Columbus twice. 
It would take a lot for a king to admit, even to himself, that he was wrong. Or he might just have Columbus assassinated, which he had done before to dispose of inconvenient people, including his own brother-in-law. That may or may not have done anything useful. Columbus had dispatched a letter to his patrons and the Pinta was still unaccounted for. But John might not have thought all of that through. Perhaps John just thought that whacking Columbus, an apparent admiral of Spain, would be very not cool. In the event, the king was overtly polite, even if the geopolitical questions were pointed. Where were these Indies? And why weren't they Portuguese territory under the Treaty of Alcacovas of 1481? Columbus punted on that question, simply saying that he had not seen the treaty, but that the sovereigns had ordered him to stay away from Guinea and land south of the Canaries, and he had obeyed. The Indians themselves were compelling evidence of the discovery. It is not unreasonable to suggest that without these hapless captives as proof, the future of the world might have been quite different. At one point, Columbus boasted to the king of Indian intelligence, which John then put to the test. Quoting Morrison, John caused to be brought a bowl of dried beans, which he scattered on a table, and ordered an Indian to arrange them so as to make a rough map of the lands that the admiral claimed to have discovered. One of them did so promptly, indicating which group of beans was Hispaniola and which Cuba, while single beans represented the Bahamas and the Lesser Antilles. The king, observing this geographical game with a gloomy countenance, as if by inadvertence, disarranged what the man had set forth and commanded another Indian to play a map maker with the beans. The second Indian reassembled the bean chart of the Antilles and, quoting Columbus, added many more islands and lands, giving us an explanation of all that he had depicted. Close quote. In Columbus's telling, King John finally expressed dismay that he had turned down Columbus's deal. It was as if he had passed on Google's Series A round, which in a sense, he had. With that, King John sent Columbus on his way on March 11th. After an obligatory visit with the Queen of Portugal, who was elsewhere and quite curious to see the Indians, Nina set sail on the morning of March 13th, destination Palos, Spain, the same port from which the expedition had departed the previous summer. Nina entered the harbor at Palos on March 15th, followed closely on the same incoming tide by, ba-dum, ba-dum, Pinta. The round trip had taken exactly 32 weeks. So what had happened to Pinta? After the two ships were separated in the first storm west of the Azores, Pinta had made it past the chain without seeing land or stopping, skipped the hideous second storm, eventually making it to Bayona in far northwest Spain, just north of the Portuguese border, at some point in the last week in February. Martin Alonso Pinzon, who had repeatedly put his own ambitions ahead of Columbus, did so again. He sent a message across the entire width of Spain to the sovereigns in Barcelona, begging, as Morrison wrote, permission to proceed thither and acquaint their highnesses with the news of the discovery. To their credit, Ferdinand and Isabella basically stiff-armed Martin Alonso, telling him that they chose to hear the news from the admiral himself. With that, Pinta sent sail for Palos too. Martin Alonso was no doubt torn between concern for his little brother on Nina and the hope that Nina had gone down with the news. 
When Pinta got to Palos and saw Nina anchored as if it had been there for days, Martin Alonso couldn't take it. Quote, Already a sick man from the hardships and exposure of the voyage, mortified by a snub from the sovereigns, he could bear no more. Without waiting for Pinta's sails to be furled, without reporting to the flagship or so much as hailing his brother, Vicente Inez, Martin Alonso Pinzon had himself rowed ashore, went to his country house near Palos, crawled into bed, and died. So that was that then. Overcoming almost unbelievable odds, Columbus had returned, having found something that seemed for all the world like an eastern outpost of Asia, and able to frame his own narrative without contradiction, at least in the moment, from the Pinzon family. At this point, we part company with Nina, and something should be said about her before we conclude with the spreading of the news of the discovery. Morrison's homage to Nina, the Admiral's favorite in So Mine, is too cute to skip over, even in the service of relevance. If she had not been very staunch and well-found, Columbus wrote after the February storm of 1493, I should have been very afraid of being lost. Santa Maria, which he never liked, ran aground off Hispaniola and stayed there. Pinta returned home and disappears from history. But Nina, there's a vessel to sing about. Built in the Tibera de Mogur, an estuary now silted up of the Rio Tinto, she made the entire first voyage, bringing the Admiral safely home. She accompanied the Grand Fleet of the second voyage to Hispaniola, and Columbus selected her from 17 sail for his flagship on an exploring voyage to Cuba and purchased a half-Sheriner, the only vessel in West Indian waters to survive the hurricane of 1495. She brought back the Admiral and over 100 passengers to Spain in 1496, and after his return, made an unauthorized voyage from Cadiz to Rome was captured by a pirate off Sardinia, recaptured by our master and crew, and returned to Cadiz in time to sail for Hispaniola again early in 1498 as advance guard of Columbus's third voyage. She was lying at Santo Domingo in 1500, and we last hear of her making a trading voyage to the Pearl Coast, that's east, eastern Venezuela, in 1501. Assuming that she reached Spain safely a third time, Nina logged at least 25,000 miles under the Admiral's command, one of the greatest little ships in the world's history, close quote. Having arrived, Columbus was, of course, eager to meet with his patrons who were holding court in Barcelona, roughly 800 miles away. He forthwith dispatched a second copy of his letter to the sovereigns, the first having been sent from Lisbon a week or two before. Given the unreliability of sending mail to kings in the Middle Ages, one could not be too careful with news of such great moment and such tremendous economic significance, not only to Columbus, but potentially to anyone who learned of it. You might be wondering why Columbus did not just head to Barcelona directly, and the answer is that one simply did not pop in on medieval kings and queens. One needed to be invited so he waited in southwestern Spain for the better part of a month. On April 7th, he received his response from the sovereigns in a letter dated March 30th, so it must have averaged 100 miles a day on the return. You may remember that the Pony Express of our Old West moved at about 10 miles per hour around the clock. 
So 100 miles a day by horse at the behest of two monarchs is very plausible, even if faster than less wealthy citizens might accomplish. The letter was very good news for Columbus, starting with a salutation. Don Cristobal Colon, their admiral of the ocean sea, viceroy and governor of the islands that he hath discovered in the Indies. No quibbling, no waffling, no welching. All that they had promised, and it should be said contracted to do, was there, without demand for further evidence. Further, the sovereigns invited Columbus to court and make the best haste you can in your coming, so that you may be timely provided with everything you need. And, finally, the admonition that Columbus must not delay in going back there. Titles, money, and the authorization of a second voyage was the hat trick for Columbus, who had needed money for new clothes and a mule less than two years before. The discovery of the Americas was, in fact, one of history's great rags-to-riches stories. So how fast did the news of Columbus's discovery of the Western route spread? The earliest evidence that the news was spreading is a letter written on March 19, 1493, by a duke from his castle about 50 miles northwest of Madrid. Triangulating a bit, the duke probably learned the news from Lisbon rather than after Columbus arrived at Palos. But by the last week in March, before Columbus had heard back from the sovereigns, the news was already spreading in Italy. We have derivative references that the Signoria of Florence got a letter from Spain that week reporting the discovery with any number of hilariously botched facts. The earliest intact Italian letter discussing the discovery is dated April 9, 1493, from a Barcelona merchant to his brother in Milan, only two days after Columbus got his return letter from the sovereigns. News of the first voyage reached Northern Europe much more slowly. The Nuremberg Chronicle, a history of the world of sorts, was printed starting July 12, 1493, with no mention of the discovery. On July 14, 1493, a Nuremberg scientist wrote a letter to John II urging him to undertake a Western voyage to the Indies, apparently ignorant that Columbus had already done so. No doubt, John found this letter irritating. We do not know when the news first reached Henry VII of England, but it must have been well before John Cabot pitched Henry on his trip to search for a Northwest Passage in early 1496. Early on, most people bought the narrative pushed by Columbus and embraced by the Spanish crown that Columbus had discovered the Indies, the easternmost outpost of Asia. Not everybody, though. John II of Portugal and his team could not reconcile the Spanish narrative with their actually correct view that Columbus's math was all wrong. So they concluded that Columbus had just discovered another group of Atlantic islands. As a result, the West Indies were always called the Antilles in Portugal, after the mythical Atlantic island Antilia. As time went by, this conflict between the Colombian Spanish narrative and the widely accepted size of the planet provoked questions, even in Spain. An Italian scholar in the service of Spain, Peter Martyr Danguera, was in court in Barcelona when Columbus arrived to report his news, and subsequent correspondence suggests that Martyr was cautiously skeptical. On October 1, 1493, in a letter to the Archbishop of Praga, Martyr wrote, quote, a certain Colonus has sailed to the Western Antipodes, even to the Indian coast, as he believes. 
He has discovered many islands, which are thought to be those of which mention is made by cosmographers, beyond the eastern ocean and adjacent to India. They do not wholly deny this, although the size of the globe seems to suggest otherwise. Close quote. Only a month later, Martyr seems at first blush to have decided that Columbus had not reached Asia. In another letter to a cleric dated November 1st, 1493, he refers to, quote, that famous Columbus, the discoverer of a new world. Now, this does not dispose of the matter insofar as there is subsequent evidence that Martyr was using the phrase new world to refer to Eastern Asia or lands that might be so. It would be another decade before Amerigo Vespucci sailed the coast of South America and pushed the idea it was a new world. And even then, it was not clear whether the European explorers, as a group, thought they'd found something absolutely new or lands proximate to Asia, perhaps as Australia is to Southeast Asia. The dilemma would not be resolved for good until Magellan's circumnavigation in 1521. For his part, until his death in 1506, Columbus doggedly maintained in public, at least, that he had reached Asia. Columbus was until the end of the stubborn entrepreneur. In Morrison's last word on the subject, one can see that the sheer cussedness that sustained Columbus during his decade of rejection made it hard for him to see the true nature of his discovery. Morrison, the very pertinacity which had made him push his grand enterprise during 10 discouraging years, the serene confidence that kept him steadfast, prevented him from ever altering his conviction that he had discovered a Western route to Asia. In his cosmographical ideas, Columbus remained stubbornly and obstinately to the end of his life absolutely and completely wrong. Close quote. So ends our time with Columbus. The next episode will be an overview of the Columbian Exchange, a topic to which I will return time and again. And from there, we will jump off to the earliest exploration and settlement of North America. As always, please consider giving the History of the Americans a good rating in your podcatcher, and by all means, send me comments, criticisms, eruptions of outrage, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Thank you again.